All right, Romans chapter 8. Um, this morning on the, uh, on the description for this, uh, when I have to, for our podcasting hosting site, when I have to type it out, I put, we continue our struggle in Romans chapter 8, not our study of Romans chapter 8, because this is really becoming a struggle. I don't know how well this is going to go this morning, but we're going to do our very best to uh, try to get something up from this. Um, before we get started, I can announce one positive thing for today. Um, our ban from YouTube has been lifted for today. Don't know how much, I don't know how long it's going to last. Here's what I... Yeah, we can, the sermon will get uploaded as soon as we're done, uh, to YouTube. Uh, here, here's what I think is going on. Um, if, I don't know if you know who Steven Crowder is, but he's very well known, uh, conservative, uh, does podcasting. He's on Glenn Beck a lot. Well, he's been, uh, he's experienced a ban from YouTube as well. And I know that it's easy to say, well, they're just going after conservatives, and sometimes it feels like they're going after Christians and conservatives. But in my case, that can't be the case, because I'm literally going after some of the things that YouTube is supposedly trying to support, trying to, trying to be against as well. Here's what I think is happening, just so that you know, and you're wondering why your church is getting banned from YouTube, just so that you know what's going on, just briefly. I'm going to do a whole podcast about this. They use, I think they use an algorithm. Right, And the algorithm searches anything uploaded to YouTube for certain words. right? And if those certain words are there, they're going to be like, oh, that's got to go. In other words, if you post anything with voter fraud in the title, or you post anything with QAnon in the title, you're going to get, in a sense, you're going to get a ban, even though they're not even listening to what you're actually saying in regards to it. All right. So, for example, I did uh, I did a uh, an episode where we talked about Sidney Powell being sued by Dominion, uh, the Dominion Computer Systems for what one point two billion dollars or I don't know her lawsuit. Fox News is being sued for one point two billion. And so I was talking about how Sidney Powell's uh, defense now, after she claimed she had overwhelming evidence to prove voter fraud, that her defense is no reasonable person was would have taken me serious. So you can't sue me because no reasonable person would have taken me serious. And I'm like, hey, um, that, that kind of proves uh, that the whole thing, they didn't have the proof they claimed they had. So YouTube supposedly doesn't want anyone promoting the voter fraud theory. I'm actually arguing against the voter fraud theory, and we got banned for promoting suspicious, harmful, basically, theory. And I'm like, I wasn't promoting anything. So here's, and here's how I know that the whole system is so fraudulent, and here's how. We got the ban, right? We already had gotten a warning for when I did a thing about QAnon, condemning QAnon. Then we got warned for being cyberbullying and harassing people for speaking against QAnon, which YouTube is trying to ban QAnon. It makes no sense. So then uh, I do the thing about the voter fraud, Sidney Powell, Fox News being sued. We, we get... Uh, we don't just get a warning. We get a complete ban for over a week where we can't upload, we can't do anything, right? So immediately it says, if you feel this is an error, file an appeal. I typed in the appeal, submitted it. Literally five minutes later, denied. Well, I said, just listen to what I said. I didn't say anything wrong. The, uh, clearly in five minutes, they didn't listen to an hour-long podcast episode. So that tells you, 
it's just just the title. It's just the title. So, um, so what I'm going to do if I ever talk about those things, I'm probably not going to upload that to YouTube. It's sad because that's where you want people to actually find the discussion, but I'm just not going to be able to do that. Or, or that's a good idea. But then if you don't put it in the title, then people won't find. It's kind of, you're, you're, you're stuck. You know what I'm saying? You're really stuck on what you can do. So uh, now it's their platform. So I always try to respect the fact that it's their platform. They can do what they want. I just don't like the fact that they're not, they're not, they're not even trying to have, a, a, like there's no person I can talk to. I can't just say, just listen to what I said and then tell me what I said wrong. But they, they want. So there's no, so, but we're currently today, we're back on YouTube. I don't think we'll be, I don't know how long we'll be there, but that, that's the situation if you were curious. Okay, now, back to Romans chapter 8. Here we go. Romans chapter 8. This chapter is presenting a whole lot of problems. So let me just try to get us to where we need to get today, all right? Romans, in fact, if you go to Romans chapter 7, we remember, Romans chapter 7 ends with such a very important conversation that I think is so, or a, a discussion in Romans 7, not a conversation, a discussion in Romans 7. Paul is explaining, discussing such an important principle that is absolutely key to how we interpret chapter 8. In the end of chapter 7, Paul expresses that the things he wants to do, he doesn't do, and the things he doesn't want to do, those are the things he actually ends up doing. He then says, verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Then verse 25, he seems to give us some indication of of, of a solution, right? There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, right? Or, I'm sorry, verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Now he thinks... He, he, he seems to indicate his deliverance is going to come through whom? Jesus Christ, right? Right there in chapter 7, verse 25. That, that, you would think, okay, awesome. But then he says something that seems so confusing, right? Who's going to deliver me? Jesus Christ. And then he describes a very almost divided kind of a person, right? What does he say he does with his mind? Law of God. What does he do with the flesh? The law of sin. And you're like, how, what do, we, what do we do with that? Now, what some people do is say, hey, in 725, he is simply explaining deliverance comes from Jesus Christ, and chapter 8 then gives you the solution. That Some people almost argue that Paul is actually describing him as being lost in 7, which again makes no sense. I, I, just, I wish I could go with that, but even if I went with that, it still wouldn't make sense for what you and I experience. But chapter 8 comes along and like, here's the solution. Here's the solution. Now, you've got to put your thinking caps on. Paul seems to be establishing that there are two realities at the exact same time. Would everyone agree? What are these two realities? <clears throat> serving the law of God and serving sin in the same person? At the same time. Everybody got that? I want to make sure we, we have to see that. I don't know how else we can get around that. Somehow, 
that has to have some impact on how we interpret chapter 8. That is the theory I've been struggling with. I still don't have it figured out. I know you're, a pastor is not supposed to stand before you and say, I don't have it figured out. But you're used to me not saying I don't have it figured out, right? You're used to that by now. You're, 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 you're the people, when you go talk to other people about church, you're like, my pastor doesn't know anything, all right? And they're like, well, my pastor knows everything. Well, your pastor's smarter than mine because my pastor's an idiot. He doesn't ever know anything. Well, maybe it's true, but... I don't, I don't pretend to know what I don't know, and I don't understand how this all works. But that, that principle has to go through the rest of chapter 8. That's, that's my hermeneutical argument. Because it, it, it has to be based off of it. And so what does he immediately do in chapter 8, verse 1? There is therefore, based off what he just said, now what? No condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Now please note, some translations don't have that at the end of verse 1. But even if you put that there, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit, but that has to be interpreted in light of chapter 7 verse 25. And the mind, I am serving God, but with the flesh, what am I doing? So how does that... There's got to be some connection there, yes? Right. But guess what? The one thing I do know, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So, what, how do, so I, again, I want you to understand these two concepts, right? Now, please listen. Thinking caps on. In the same person, at the same time, you can be serving the law, God in your mind, but in your flesh, you're serving sin. At the same time, in the same person, there can be no condemnation but the presence of sin. Right? Agreed? At the same time, there is one sense where you're not walking after the flesh, but there's another sense where you're serving the law of sin, the law of of sin, right? In your flesh. How can that both be true at the same time? Seems confusing. Keep that in mind. Just just keep that in mind, all right? It's going to get right back to where we were. Everybody understand that? For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus had made me free from the law of sin and death. So there's some sense where I am free, right? In in chapter 8, he says he's free, but what did he say in chapter 7? He's serving sin. So how can he be free and serve sin at the same time? Seems like a contradiction, right? Right? So again, I want to make sure you understand this. There are these, there is a mingling of two concepts throughout this entire chapter. In seven, you see it, and in chapter eight, there's a mingling. I want everyone to understand that. There is a mingling. That in the same person, there is no condemnation, but I'm serving sin. That in the same person who supposedly is free is still serving sin and can't stop sinning. So how can I be free if I'm sinning? Right? Agreed? That seems to be contradictory. Would everyone agree? Right. Next, uh, next verse. Um, uh, for, uh, okay, for the law, let me go back to verse 2. For the, uh, for the law of sin, of, of life in Christ, hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Verse 3. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin and the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Please note verse 4. There's another mingling. What can be fulfilled in me? Now, the righteousness of the law can be fulfilled in me while I am doing what? 
breaking the law. Do you not break God's law? Yes. So how can I be fulfilling it while I'm breaking it? Do you see the mingling of two contradictory concepts? Yes? Now, what is the possible solution to some of this so far? Remember these distinction, position and practice, right? How, is, how, how can I fulfill God's law in, in, in my position because of the imputed righteousness of Christ? But in practice, clearly if I break one point of the law, I'm guilty of all of it. So how can both be true at the same time? Please understand, this is, this is a, a, a concept that's working all the way through. Verse 5, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Well, guess what? Paul seems to describe that, th- that both can be true in the same person in some way. Yes? That in one way I can be after the things of the Spirit, but in other ways I can be after the things of the flesh. Because did he not describe himself as, in my mind I'm doing what? Law of God, but in my flesh I'm doing what? And the same person. How is this possible? Next verse, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Can I be carnally minded and spiritually minded at the same time? You may want to say no, but I can tell you this, you can be a Christian and be carnally minded because in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul refers to the people in the church of Corinth as being what? Carnal. Yet he refers to them as babes in Christ. So how, how can both be true? All right, verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So them that are in the flesh cannot please God. Are we in the flesh? Yes. If you say we're not... What does that mean? I'm in the flesh because what does Paul say he does with the flesh? Serves the law of sin. Right. Now, if I'm in the flesh only, then I'm in trouble. But if I'm in the flesh in practice, but in my position, I'm identified in Christ, then I can please God because what's pleasing God? The imputed righteousness of Christ. Like, how, how do we draw these distinctions? Now, continue. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So, in some ways, we're not in the flesh. He says, we're not in the flesh, but clearly, there's got to be a, a, some aspect that I'm in the flesh. You see how these two ideas seem to commingle? And Christians have debated in how to separate this, and I don't think there's a separation. That's what I want you to see. I don't think there's a separation. Every Christian who's a true Christian, there are two things true at the same time. There's a bunch of things that are true at the same time that are contradictory, right? In my position, what am I? Perfectly righteous, holy, and without sin. What am I in practice? A sinner. In my position, what am I focusing on? Christ. In my flesh, what do I focus on? Self. Sin. Correct? Both are true. As a Christian, two concepts come together. Right? I don't understand how we work this out. The one thing is true as a Christian, I have the Spirit of God in me. Even though I have the Spirit of God in me, what else still remains in me? Sin. Keep that t- together. How we work all of this through, I don't know. 
You can, we can argue. Some people try to draw a distinction by in the flesh versus after the flesh, which Sarah, Sarah Danzler asked all kinds of questions about that I still haven't got a good answer on and have figured it out. I just want you to see, just, this is the concept I want you to get. That two contradictory concepts can seem to be true at the same time. Now, this deals with the idea, as a Christian, we have the Spirit of God, yet we still sin. That we all seem to know. Now, keep that in mind, because I think, and I could be wrong, this is critical to understanding what happens here in Romans chapter 8, when we get to, uh, starting in verse, where do we want to start this uh, in my outline? Where did I start this? Um, when we get to uh, probably Romans chapter 8, verses 17 and following. When we get to Romans 8, verses 17 and following, we see this concept come together. Now listen, not in regards to having the Spirit and sinning, but into the area of two different concepts, suffering and glory, which we talked about last week. Remember, there are two different ways of interpreting suffering and glory. Some wanted to interpret it which way? Does everybody remember from your notes? Consecutive. First suffering, then glory. And then there was a view that emerged that said, no, they are what? They're intermingled. Right? One had them consecutive, right? That there's suffering and then glory. Suffering leads to glory. But the intermingled part means what? Both are present at the same time. We are suffering, but what are we also experiencing? Glory. And it seems improbable. I think that that, the suffering and glory discussion, may be critical to understanding all of this confusion that comes before it. That's why we jumped to the suffering and glory. Now, I'm going to try to build on that this morning and see how far we can get because I think it's important, all right? Now, Friday is the day that we, uh, w- depending, now, di- we, this year we didn't follow the church calendar, but Friday was what is known as Good Friday, yes? And we can say, what's so good about that, right? And remember, the reason it's probably called Good Friday is it probably comes from the idea of God's Friday, like goodbye is God be with you. Right? So most likely Good Friday was supposed to be God's Friday. Okay, That's probably where the idea came from. I did a whole teaching on it, uh, kind of the origins of it. But we, what do we remember on that particular day, on, on Good Friday? Or we're supposed to be remembering? The crucifixion of Christ. And I know there's debate that he wasn't crucified on Friday. He was crucified on Wednesday or Thursday. The issue isn't the day. The issue is we're remembering the event. Does that make sense? It's the event that we're remembering, okay? So, I don't care what day it is. It's a day set aside that this is the day we remember the crucifixion of Christ. And I went into, I did two hours of catechesis on the crucifixion, and I I did all of that. But, what I want you to think about is on the cross, two concepts were coming together that seemed contradictory. Suffering and glory in one horrific event. Right? Let's look at some scriptures where you see how this concept comes together. All right? I, I want you to see this. I know I, I'm, trying, I'm trying to put this all together, but hopefully this is all going to make sense. Go to the Gospel of John, chapter 13.
John chapter 13, verse 21. John 13, 21. All right? Now, I know we started way late, so I'm, going to try, I'm just going to try to get us as far as I can today, okay? But I, I want you to get this concept. So before we read this, what, what's the concept I'm trying to get across to you? Two contradictory ideas, true at the same time, intermingled, right? Okay, hey, maybe two sides of one coin is another one, but I, I like it, the idea, I like them more mingled together. I know a coin is mingled together, but I really want you to see them mingled together, all right? And the reason I want you to see this is because we have, this is almost the way we view Christianity, right? Here I was. And think about how the way some Christians sell Christianity. See if this makes sense. Here I was, I was a horribly bad, lost person, and I struggled with sin, and I had this addiction, and I struggled with this, and I struggled with this, and Jesus saved me. And boom! No more struggle, no more addiction. Man, I've got the power of God, I'm serving God, everything's wonderful. It's almost like this clear break. Right? This clear break. Yes? But what's the reality? I'm still a sinner. Is it true the Spirit is inside of me? Yes. Is it true that I've been saved? Yes. There, there is an, there's certain aspects that's true, but it's still commingled with the reality that I'm still a sinner who's still going to fall and fall short, which Paul seems to identify in Romans 7. But everyone wants to act like Romans 8 is, is, like Romans 8 is the solution to the problem. It just all goes away. And I'm going to say, no, it's still mingled with the sin that's in us. So there's this weird contradictory thing. On one hand, I'm serving God. On the other hand, I'm serving sin. Again, Romans 7. 8 seems to be taking all of these concepts and showing you how they are mingled together. And I think that's true when it comes to suffering and glory. Suffering and glory is, is an example of how this works. So here we go. John chapter, what did I say, 13? See if this makes sense to you. Everybody ready? John chapter 13. All right. Verse 21. When Jesus had thus said, when Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. All right. When you, when you're getting ready to be betrayed, is that a glorious situation or a suffering situation? That's a suffering situation. Yes. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it would be of whom he spake. So there's Peter going, hey, hey, hey. Find out who it is. Because that's how we, that's what we always want to do, right? That's what we always want to do. We always want to know who did it. Who did it? And we want to know what they did. Um, Please just note that's just an ungodly attitude. If I come up here and say that there's a problem with someone, that there was a problem with someone in the church and there was a sin and we had to deal with it, you know what? Unless you need to know, you don't need to know. And the fact that you want to know says more about you than it does about the sin in the church. In fact, it shows sin in your heart because you just want to know to know so that you can either feel superior or that you can do a lot, have a lot of t- uh, time gossiping. Find a new hobby. Find a new hobby. Hey, you know what Peter should be worried about? Peter. <laughs> As we know the rest of the story, right? He wants to know who's going to betray him. Who's going to deny him? Yeah, 
Right? So usually when you're worried about someone else, you're not worrying about yourself. And usually that's, that's where the problems begin. All right? So uh, he then lying on Jesus' breast saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, he, uh, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he just had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after that sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, Thou that thou doest, do quickly. Right? That's, not, that's a bad situation, right? When you're Jesus, you have your disciples, and when you're disciples, Satan just entered into. Right? That's, that's not a very, that's a suffering situation. I think we can all agree. Bad, dark, painful. Now, no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought because Judas had the bag that Jesus had said unto him, but uh, buy those things that we have need of against the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So in other words, they didn't really understand what Jesus was saying. They're still trying to figure it out. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway glorify him. Jesus is getting ready to go where? To the cross, and he's saying that somehow in that cross, who's going to be glorified? God is going to be glorified in the most horrific action that you can even imagine, the horrible crucifixion of the eternal Son of God dying and suffering for, for sinners. Somehow, that's suffering, but what's going to be present? Glory. I mean, Jesus said it, right? I mean, I didn't have to impose anything on the text. Jesus said it. We can go to John 17. The same concept shows up. So on the cross, what do we see? Suffering. What else do we see? And glory. And the same person in the same act, both are present. Do they seem like contradictory ideas? Yes. They seem like contradictory ideas, but they come together. Now, go back to Romans 8. I'm going to have to go through this quickly. All right, now, I, I, could, I could go to John 17 and build that, that theory out, but I think you get the idea, right? In the cross, both things are present at the same time, right? You can, you can so focus on the suffering that you miss what? The glory. You can so focus on the glory that you miss what? The suffering. You've got to see both. You got to see both. Keep that in mind when it comes to your salvation. Right? Am I saved? Am I am I a sinner? Do I have the spirit? Seem contradictory ideas. They all come together in each of us. Now, when we get to Romans 8, let's remember that a literary device is being used here. Everybody remember the literary device? An inclusio, right? An inclusio where you bracket you bracket something by at the beginning of it He's going to mention suffering and glory. And at the end of it, he's going to mention suffering and glory. And in the middle, suffering and glory becomes key to understanding what is in the middle. Does that make sense? All right, let's go to Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 17. All right. Here we go. All right. If you're going to, do, if you're going to outline this, do it this way. All right. Uh, Romans 8, 17 through 18, just write down suffering and glory. Romans 8, suffering, Romans 8, 17 through 18, suffering and glory. Right, here we go. Everybody there? And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, 
that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Two concepts are there. Suffering and glory. You see glory in two different ways, right? First, in, I think it's 17, it talks about being joint heirs with God. Yes? That is, that is true when? The minute you become, a, you become saved, what are you? Adopted into the family of God and what do you become? A joint heir. That is true. That is true. That is an aspect of glory that is yours right now. But what else is you're going to experience? Suffering. And that suffering happens also when? Now. But there's also a hope of what? A future glory. Suffering and glory now with a hope of glory, with a, a, a confident hope of glory in the future. So let's look at it together. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, that's true right now, if be that we suffer with him, that we may also glorified together. For I reckon that suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Suffering and glory now with a hope of a glory coming in the future that we cannot even comprehend and that will outweigh the suffering now. Does that make sense? There's suffering and glory and I think together. Now, in the midst of this discussion about suffering and glory, that establishes it. He's going to end the section with it, but in the middle... There are three groanings. There are three groanings that take place in the middle. These groanings are occurring right now. Let's look at each groaning and then take it apart and see if if this will make some sense to you. All right? What is the first groaning that occurs? All right? Verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creatures was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subject the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. So, we have number one, suffering and glory. Number two, we have three groanings. And the first groaning is creation groans. Creation groans. All right. Now, groaning indicates what? Suffering, Suffering, pain. Right? Suffering and pain. Yes? Look at how he, look at some of the words he uses to kind of describe this kind of groaning. All right? Romans 8.18, what words does he use there? For I reckon that the suffering of this present time, there's suffering, right? Look at the next word. Look at, uh, I think, verse 20. For the creature was made subject to Vanity, not willing, but by reason of him who hath subject the same and hope. All right. Everybody see that vanity. How about verse 21? Frustration. Okay. Frustration. Verse 21. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage. There's the word bondage. Everybody see that. 
And then what else in verse 21? Corruption. All right. Everybody see the word corruption? I think uh, uh, the NIV may use the word pain there. Or decay. Does it use decay? Uses decay for corruption. And then verse 22. For we know the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain. There's another word to describe it. What are all those words to describe this groaning? What are they? Go through them. I just I gave them to you. Suffering. Suffering vanity. Bondage. Corruption. Pain. Is that a good thing? Creation is groaning. That is pain. That is, that, is, that is exactly what we're talking about. But this is very important. At the very same time, creation is groaning and it's subjected to all of this horrible thing. Go to Psalm chapter 19 and see what it says about creation. Psalm chapter 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The very creation that is groaning, that is experiencing and showing forth pain, corruption, decay, vanity, all of that also does what? Declares the glory of God. How can it be, how can both happen at the same time? And is it not confusing? Some people will look at creation and go, if there's a God, what's the problem? Look at creation. If there's a God, it's all messed up. There's famine, pestilence, disease, floods, storms, suffering, starvation, death. No, God left us a long time ago. The Bible seems to say two things are true at the same time that seem to contradict. That suffering and glory can exist at the same time dealing with the exact same thing. In this particular case, what? Creation. Creation groans, and they use very descriptive words to, to describe that. Does that make sense? All right. Go to the next one. All right. Look at Romans 8, starting at verse 23. So, so uh, the, uh, there are three groanings. The first groaning is creation. It goes from basically verse 19 to verse 22. All right. Does that make sense? Right. So what's the second groaning? Verse 23. And not only they but ourselves also, so in other words, ourselves also do what? We groan and travail, right? Not just with creation, but us, uh, but not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. Everybody see that? We're groaning right now. We're groaning right now. But look, look very carefully at that verse. It mentions something there. Say it. First fruits of the Spirit. Who has the first fruits of the Spirit? We do. What are we doing? Groaning. Wait, we're groaning while we have the Spirit. The Spirit would be the presence of what? Glory. Because God is connected to glory, right? But yet we're groaning. How can that be true at the same time? How can it be true at the exact same time? Um, here's how one commentary puts it. The reason we groan 
is because we have experienced the first fruits of the Spirit or a foretaste of the glory to come. Just as the nation of Israel tasted the first fruits of Canaan when the spies returned, they, they, they tasted the first fruits, they saw the first fruits, but then what did they do? They groaned and complained, right? They saw the first fruits and yet they groaned and, and complained. So we Christians have tasted the blessings of the heaven through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that makes us want to see the Lord, receive a new body, and live with him and serve him forever. We're waiting for the adoption, which is the redemption of the body when Christ returns, right? So we're waiting for it, but in the meantime, what are we doing? We're groaning. In some sense, the presence of God's glory in us creates even more groaning because we, we, we long for something more. Do you not see that in Paul in Romans 7? Now, what causes that groaning? I'm going to argue what causes that groaning is we have the Spirit in us where in my mind I'm trying to serve God, but what do I find in my body? Sin, which creates in me groaning. And the same person at the same time. The suffering and the glory is so critical to understanding. This idea that you're going to become a Christian and now you get the Spirit and boom, you have supernatural power so now you can fulfill the law and you can do this and that goes against everything that he's explaining when it comes to suffering and glory. The suffering and glory seems like a... Why is he talking about... It seems so weird. He's talking about the Spirit and the flesh, right? And then all of a sudden he goes, suffering and glory. It seems so disconnected. Yes? Maybe it's not as disconnected as it appears. The suffering and the glory is very consistent with what we experience as Christians. We experience, we're the, we have the first fruits of the Spirit inside of us. But what else do we have inside of us? Sin. Those are two realities in the same person at the same time. This has to change the way we perceive our entire Christian life. It has to. All right? So, all right, now we'll, we'll move on to the, to the third. So uh, that goes all the way down to verse 25. But pl- please note, but if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. So we have a hope. What's that hope? We're hoping for the future glory. Yes? But that doesn't mean we don't have, we're experiencing glory now. Are we not experiencing glory now? We have the Spirit of God inside of us. But are we not suffering? Yes! At the same time, is the, does creation groan right now and suffer? Yes. What else does it do? Bring God glory. And the same time. Understand. Now, there's one other. What's the next thing that groans? Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth with our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray, for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession us with what? Groanings which cannot be uttered. What does that mean? The Spirit is something that is, would be connected with God's glory, but it groans. What is it groaning for? And it's groaning with us. It's groaning for us. It's groaning on behalf of us. It's taking our pain and our struggle and bringing it before God, making intercession for us. The fact that the Spirit of God is in you, making intercession for you, demonstrates that what are you experiencing at the same time? Suffering and glory at the exact same time. All right, now, bring that all together. Okay, then 
What happens? So that's the, so our outline, we have suffering and glory, verses 17 and 18. We have three, three groanings that go from chapter 19 all the way, we'll just say down to verse, uh, we'll go to verse 27. And, he, and speaking of the Spirit, he searcheth the hearts, know what is in the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And it great that the Spirit of God is making, is, is interceding for you, and he intercedes according to what? God's will, not your will. He doesn't take your groanings and, and groan them, in a sense, give them to God. He takes your groanings and then prays and intercedes to the Father according to the Father's will, not your will. That's very important to understand. Okay? Now, then look what happens. So we've got suffering and glory. We've got three groanings. What are the three groanings? Creation, us, and the Spirit. And then, 28 to 30, we have suffering and glory come back together at the end. All right? Suffering and glory at the end. This is the inclusio. This is the bracket. Right? Now look at what happens in verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Stop right there. What are the all things? The groanings and the sufferings. The groaning and the suffering, all those things, right, are working together for what? For good. What good? The glory of God. In fact, let me read to you how I have it in my, my notes here, all right? I think it's very, very important, all right? Each of these points, suffering, glory, the groaning of creation, the groaning of Christians, and the groaning of the Spirit, includes blessings of the age to come and the new covenant that have already dawned for Christians but are not yet complete. In other words, we are already experiencing some of the blessings even right now. Suffering and glory was no longer consecutive. The one would lead to the other, but rather was intermingled with the other. Because of the death and resurrection of Christ, the glory of the age to come is broken into the age of suffering. Thus the two are intertwined in the Christian's life, as Romans 8, 17 through 18 makes clear. God's glory is already the possession of the believer even in the age of suffering. Now listen, but the divine glory is present, presently invisible, residing in the Christian's heart. Only at the return of Christ will it be ultimately revealed. Now, this is very important. Romans 8, 28 through 30 presents the same pattern. Divine glory is the present possession of the believer, but coexists with suffering. The former aspect is kind of delineated in Romans 8, 29-30, which showcases a dazzling display of theological terms to describe the present aspect of the Christian salvation. You can see some of those terms. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Right? Everybody see all of those? It's not an accident that glory is the term used to conclude that list. Why? Because it, it completes the inclusio. Suffering and glory, how does it end? With glory, right? With glorified, right? The term used to conclude that list, for it returns the reader to the thought that, it, that initiated the paragraph. The latter aspect, suffering, is the conceptual antecedent of the words in all things, God works for the good of those who. Suffering is the conceptual antecedent. It's what that is referring to. Now, listen. In context, 
The all things are the afflictions that God uses to conform the believer to the image and glory of Christ. So how does this work? You're a Christian. What is true at the same time? Suffering and glory. God takes the suffering, right? And uses it for what purpose? For his glory. For his glory. You experience at the same time. Somehow, that concept has to be the answer to the problems we have between seven and eight. Seven and eight describes a person who is what? Uh, Paul seeming to be a Christian, what is he experiencing at the exact same time? He's experiencing sin or just supplement that with suffering. He's also experiencing God is in him, right? The spirit of God is in him. He, he even celebrates, oh wretched man, who's going to deliver me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. He, there's the glory aspect. He's experienced Christ. And then he describes this weird thing. In my mind, law of God. In my flesh, then chapter 8, verse 1, there's no condemnation. Right now. I'm not condemned right now. Is that not glory? Yes. What else does he go on to say in 8? What, is he, what are we indwelt with? The Holy Spirit. Is that not glory? Yes, but what also is present? Suffering or or supplement that with sin. And somehow God uses the sin. He leaves it there, right? Remember I I read from a, a commentary about why God leaves sin there. Right? He leaves sin there for a couple of reasons. To humble us. To demonstrate that we cannot save ourselves. He leaves it there. Clearly he leaves it. He can eradicate it at the moment of our salvation. He leaves it. Immediately at our salvation, he could eradicate all suffering. He doesn't remove suffering. He doesn't remove sin. And then he uses all things, including suffering, and I will argue including sin, to conform us and to bring him glory. Both have to be true at the same time. So when I sin, should I neglect? I cannot overlook the fact that in my position, I'm I'm already saved, right? But I'm longing for a future deliverance. When I am suffering, what can I not overlook in the midst of my suffering? The glory. Right? Because both are present at the same time. I think this is establishing that this is the way it works. And the cross, all we can see is tragedy, but there's glory there. All we can see is pain there, but there is salvation there. Yes? In my life and in your life, what do I see? Sin and failure. But what is also present? Righteousness and salvation. All in the same person. It seems so contradictory. If we don't understand that, the Christian life makes no sense. And we don't like it that way, right? We like to make everything like very consecutive. Like here, here's what I was. Here's now what I am. And then this is what I will be. But we, we, we almost forget what I will be. And we always want to make that what I will be what we are right now. But that, that doesn't work, does it? We always went away. I'm suffering now and then I'll get the glory. But there's glory present now. There is salvation present now. There's no condemnation now. The Spirit is in me now. I am perfectly righteous 
now, yet I'm still a sinner. Does that make sense? Maybe? I, I know that's not the way it's typically handled, but the suffering and glory, that's, the, that's what he is saying. Because in every one of those areas where there is groaning and there's suffering, there's glory present. Is there not glory present in creation? Glorifies God. Is there not glory present in us while we're groaning? The Spirit is inside of us. Yes? Is there, is, I mean, that, that, that's the Holy Spirit. He's groaning with us. Is there not glory present? It's the Holy Spirit. That suffering and glory may be the answer to the problem presented from 7 into the first part of 8. That's going to be my argument for it. I know no other commentary is going to think of it that way, but that's why you come here to hear me throw out my crazy, whacked-out theories that everyone disagrees with. But you can meditate on it, and we'll have to stop right there because we're already way late. All right, any questions? If you don't get it, let me know. All right, and you can let me know, and I'll do my best to try to help you understand it. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, we are grateful that on a day like this, when we remember the resurrection of Christ, even though we are still in this body that is subject to decay, subject to death, we've, one, already experienced a resurrection in our salvation, yet we're in a body that will die. And even though our body will die, we know that we will be present with you. These concepts that seem contradictory come together in ways that are beyond even our ways of understanding. And I pray that we would just remember that in the midst of great suffering and pain with the sacrifice of your son, he was saving sinners. And we just praise you that somehow in your system, contradictory ideas come together and yet they make sense. And I pray that we would give us a greater understanding of these principles and how they apply not only to our, ourselves, how, how we should look at suffering and how we should look at our salvation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,